Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. I'm Phil Harland, a, a prof at York University. We're continuing in the series Visions of the End. In this series, we're going to be investigating the origins and the development of apocalypticism, particularly within Judean culture in its ancient context, and then within Christian settings, both in the ancient world and eventually making our way into the modern world as well. In the last episode, we began to look at some of the component parts that came to play a role within apocalypticism in the Judean context. Remember that the full-blown apocalyptic worldview within Judean context only begins to fully emerge for us to see in 200 BCE. That doesn't mean it didn't exist beforehand, but it's in the centuries leading up to 200 BCE, obviously, that this worldview was starting to come together in the way that we see it appear in things like First Enoch and then the book of Daniel. So what we needed to ask and what we began to answer in the last episode was where did the component parts of the apocalyptic worldview come from? What earlier cultural ideas came to play a role in the development of Judean apocalypticism? And we began by looking at the culture of the ancient Near East and took a look at the combat myth. Today we turn to a different cultural sphere that came to play a role in the development of Judean apocalypticism, and that is Iranian or Persian culture, in particular Zoroastrianism within that culture. So today we're going to be talking about Zoroaster, his apocalyptic ideas, and the development of Zoroastrian apocalypticism. Now, something to say off the bat is this. Regardless of the issue of to what degree did Persian apocalypticism play a role in the development of Judean apocalypticism, no matter how we answer precisely that issue, Zoroastrian apocalypticism on its own is worthy of study. This is something that should be discussed in a course on apocalypticism, even setting aside the issue of how much it influenced or played a role in the development of Judean apocalypticism. So let me say that off the bat. But what we'll soon see is that there are clear signs that in some way Zoroastrian apocalypticism played some role in the development of Judean apocalypticism. The difficulty has to do with the dates of Zoroaster and the dates of the Zoroastrian sources. We're soon going to see there are quite a few problems with dating things, which then makes it very difficult to know which things came first, which things predate Judean apocalypticism, and how can we assess more specifically what elements of Zoroastrianism came to play a role in how Judean apocalypticism was expressed. The other side of the coin, of course, is did Judean apocalypticism influence Zoroastrian apocalypticism? And so that interplay between the two is difficult to assess. We're going to be primarily asking the question of what elements of Zoroastrian apocalypticism may have informed Judean apocalypticism, primarily just because of the nature of our course here. We're trying to sort out the origins of Judean apocalypticism. This is a difficult question to answer but we're going to do our best to at least provide tentative suggestions. Let me first say something about geography so that you have a geographical bearing here. When we talk about Persia, we're talking about an area that partly overlaps with what in the modern world is known as Iran. Remember last week we were primarily looking at Mesopotamia, which, prim which overlaps with what we now know as Iraq. So we've been talking about the influence of 
early civilizations in Iraq and Iran on the development of Judean apocalypticism over there in Israel. Let me get into dates a little bit before I scan through some of the literature to illustrate the Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview and its components. First, let me say something about the dates of Zoroaster himself. Then I'll turn to the issues of dates around the sources for Zoroastrianism. Both of these issues make it very problematic for being able to say something very solid about how Zoroastrianism relates to Judean culture. Even though we know there's some relation, it's difficult to know which issues we can be most certain about with regard to the relationship between these two types of apocalypticism. Zoroaster himself has been dated variously in the sources. If you take a look at things like Plutarch, which we will later in regard to his description of Zoroastrianism, you have him stating, and several other ancient Greek and Roman authors, that Zoroaster lived about 5,000 years before the Trojan War. What, does, what date does this make it in the view of some of these Greek authors that Zoroaster lived? It makes it in the 6,000s BCE. As you can imagine, this sort of statement of antiquity, this sort of claim of something being very, very old, is quite common in ancient literature, and we have to take it with a grain of salt and need to be careful about it, taking on such views as though they're historical and accurate. Sources from late antiquity and into the Middle Ages suggest that Zoroaster lived in the 6th or 7th century BCE, so we're talking the late 600s BCE and into the 500s BCE. Now this traditional dating that we find in authors like the Islamic scholar al-Biruni wrote in the 900s CE is based primarily, it seems, on traditional popular Iranian belief about when Zoroaster lived. So there you have two very extremely different dates of Zoroaster. Did he live in the 6000s BCE or the 600s BCE? Now what scholars have done who spend their time studying Zoroastrianism has stepped aside from what the claims are in ancient authors about the dates of Zoroaster, instead analyze the literature, see what we can find in the literature which may indicate and at least propose a range of dates for particular writings. Experts in Zoroastrianism like Mary Boyce and others have suggested that the society that is reflected, at least in the earliest materials among the Zoroastrian writings, particularly in the Gathas, which are the hymns attributed to Zoroaster himself, seem to reflect a pastoral society and not an agricultural society. In other words, there are frequent references to herdsmen, to cows, and to tending herds. And yet, very few of the analogies, very little of the imagery is drawn from agricultural sort of settings. This suggests an early date around approximately around 1000 BCE or earlier, as some scholars have suggested, for some of the Gathas. So there you have it. Already we have some difficulties here on dates, because if Zoroaster was around since 1200s BCE, you can imagine there are hundreds and hundreds of years for the potential contact between Persian or Zoroastrian cultural ideas and other cultures in the ancient Near East. If he lived in the 600s BCE, there's still some time there to work with in the contact between Judean culture and Zoroastrian culture, but not quite as much time. Let's move on to another problem of dates, and that is to do with the writings themselves. 
As with most ancient cultures, ancient Persia was an oral culture. In contrast to the modern world, where we assume things are written down and assume that we can, uh, things will be typed up and that we can access information in that way, in oral cultures it's assumed that you don't do that. And it's the strange people, you could say, who write things down. So in the case of the Zoroastrian material that were passed on orally within this Persian context, the Zoroastrian writings, it seems, were not written down until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Zoroaster lived. The evidence we have suggests that these writings were first put in writing in the 400s or later CE, not BCE, CE. We're talking potentially more than a thousand years after Zoroaster, if not more. So this makes it a difficulty for us because we can't know precisely which elements in these writings that are written down in, four, in the 400 CE and after actually go back to earlier periods. How do we know which writings reflect which century, let's say? And when do we know that a certain teaching about apocalypticism within these writings goes back to Zoroaster and how can we know that? The teachings within Zoroastrianism were only put into writing in the 400s or later CE, and the earliest manuscript that has survived for us comes from the early Middle Ages. So we're dealing with major problems here with dating and being able to see cultural influences between Judean culture and Zoroastrianism when we're dealing with these issues of date. One of the reasons that the orally passed on teachings of Zoroaster were put into writing uh, eventually, is that the Zoroastrian religion became the official religion, first of the Persian Empire, beginning in the late 500s and into the 400s BCE. Persian monarchs began to adopt Zoroastrianism as their official religion. And then in the later Persian Empire, known as the Sasanian Empire, the uh, monarchs obviously would have an interest in having the teachings put into writing. And so this is what partially led to the Zoroastrian orally passed on material being put into writing in the 400s and after CE. One approach that is helpful is to begin with our earliest evidence for Zoroastrian teachings, which happens to be outside the Zoroastrian writings. We have some Greek authors who write earlier who explain what they think about the Zoroastrian teaching. And it happens to be that one of them, Plutarch, who writes in about 120 CE and actually relies on an earlier source that may go back to the 400s BCE, Plutarch's ethnographic description of Zoroastrian teachings seems to be quite accurate when we compare it to some of the things we find within Zoroastrian writings itself. So the first question of, can we trust Plutarch at all on describing the culture of another people and the teachings of another society, in this case, it seems we can. Take a look at Plutarch's Moralia in the section that is in praise of Isis and Osiris. And we're in the section from 369e and following. Here, Plutarch, incidentally, to illustrate a point, turns to what he knows about Zoroaster and his teachings. And he says this, The great majority and the wisest of men hold this opinion. They believe that there are two gods, rivals as it were, the one the artificer of good and the other of evil. Here we already have him talking about 
the issue of dualism that we've talked about as central to the apocalyptic worldview, and now he's going to turn to Zoroaster as an example of this. Zoroaster the sage, who they record lived 5,000 years before the time of the Trojan War, he called the one Ohoramazda, or Oramatses as he puts it here, and the other Angramainu, or Aramanius. And Zoroaster further declared that among all the things perceptible to the senses, Ahura Mazda may best be compared to light, and Angramainu conversely to darkness and ignorance. He then goes on to outline this dualism in terms of a battle, and suggests that Zoroaster himself taught about the battle between these two figures. Now remember that this idea of a battle between good and evil is not characteristic of all cultures in the ancient context. This is what we're studying by looking at Judean apocalypticism, is the emergence of this way of thinking as a primary way of expressing a whole religious worldview, let's say. So this is a new thing, so to speak, within this ancient context. And here Plutarch is looking back to an example of it in Zoroaster. Here's what he goes on to say about this cosmic battle. However, they also tell many fabulous stories about their gods, as Zoroastrians do, such, for example, as the following. Ahura Mazda, born from the purest light, and Angramainu, born from the darkness, are constantly at war with each other. And Ahura Mazda created six gods, the first of good thought, the second of truth. It then goes on to list these six gods. But Angramainu created rivals, as it were, equal to these in number. We then go on in the passage here a few sentences later to see this description of a sort of end-time situation where the constant battle between good and evil, between Ahua Mazda, symbolized by light, and Angramainu, symbolized by darkness, where this ongoing battle in the universe comes to an end. And this is what we have described here as the end-time situation. But at a destined time shall come when it is decreed that Angramainu, engaged in bringing on pestilence and famine, shall by these utterly be annihilated, and shall disappear, and then shall the earth become a level plain, and there shall be one manner of life, and one form of government for a blessed people, who shall all speak one tongue. Theopompus says, he's quoting Theopompus now. Now, most scholars who look at the quotations of Theopompus that have survived in ancient literature, the writings of Theopompus themselves have not survived, but those who have studied the quotations of Theopompus suggest that he lived in the 400s BCE. So we're getting even closer here. Even though Plutarch's in 120 CE, he seems to be using a source that knows about Zoroastrian teachings that dates, a Greek source, that dates from the 400s BCE. We're getting closer here. We're jumping centuries back closer to Zoroaster himself, potentially, in this sketch of Zoroastrian teaching. In other words, what we're getting here in Plutarch, potentially, is a lot earlier than some of the sources we have within Zoroastrian writings themselves. Back to what we're reading here. Theopompus says that, according to the sages, one god is to overpower and the other to be overpowered, each in turn for the space of 3,000 years, and afterward for another 3,000 years they shall fight and war, and one shall undo the works of the other, and finally, here's a Greek term, Hades, but they mean death is the way of putting it here, shall pass away. 
Then shall the people be happy, and neither shall they need to have food, nor shall they cast any shadow. And the God who has contrived to bring about all these things shall then have quiet, Ahura Mazda shall, and shall repose for a time, no long time indeed, but for the God as much as would be moderate time for a man to sleep. Thing ends with there with Ahura Mazda having a good nap. But what's important for us isn't the nap. It's this sketch we're getting, Zoroaster's teachings, in terms of a battle between two forces, the force of good and the force of evil. This is no longer barely just the combat myth, is it? It's no longer just the chaotic god threatening the order of the gods and a god stepping up and defeating, setting back chaos for chaos to once again come forward in another form. Instead, it's a final notion of a battle, isn't it? It's a battle between Ahura Mazda, light, and Angramanyu, darkness, that will ultimately have an end, as it's put here. A destined time shall come when the forces of Angramanyu are, quote, utterly annihilated and shall disappear. This is what is new, so to speak. This is what is emerging within the apocalyptic worldview, both within Zoroastrianism and within Judean apocalypticism. This is what is different than what came before. This final notion, this combat myth writ large, in which the battle has an end, a clear end, and the destruction of evil in terms of a moral sense of evil that we haven't seen in the combat myth that we talked about in the last episode. But that nonetheless, the combat myth is here, isn't it? It's just transformed in a different way in Zoroastrianism and within Judean apocalypticism, as we'll learn in the course as we progress. But there you have, then, the most extensive earliest statement about what Zoroaster taught. Now, as we move forward to the later literature, in other words, the Zoroastrian material itself, we'll see that a lot of the components we see there in Plutarch, a lot of the characteristics of the apocalyptic worldview that are explained by Plutarch and attributed to Zoroaster, are indeed in the Zoroastrian writings themselves, so that we begin to see that Plutarch's not far off in his description, that basic structure of the dualism, the cosmic dualism that is so characteristic of the apocalyptic worldview, both within Zoroastrianism and within Judean culture, goes back most likely to Zoroaster himself, as we'll see. Let's turn to those Zoroastrian writings. What I would suggest to you is a helpful methodological approach to these writings, because of those problems of date we already mentioned, is to begin with the writings that seem to be the earliest, even though we can't know for sure whether they were influenced and changed later, and then only subsequently turn to other literature within the Zoroastrian Avesta, the Zoroastrian scriptures. Now, most scholars of Zoroastrianism would agree that the early Gathas, the hymns attributed to Zoroaster, seem to be among the earliest material, partly because of the language that is used within them. Even though these were only written down after 400 CE, they seem to be the earliest passed on orally material associated with Zoroaster. So we potentially are getting closest to Zoroaster when we analyze the Gathas, the hymns. Now, scholars like Boyce would date these perhaps as early as 1000 BCE or earlier. So the, that period of 1000 to 1200 BCE that potentially Zoroaster himself lived in. Now, if obviously Zoroaster lived 
in the 6th century BCE, then these can be no earlier than that. So we're back to that issue of date. But it's in these hymns themselves that we have that pastoral society reflected, not an agricultural society, which is what allowed some scholars to propose this idea of them coming from 1000 BCE or earlier. And what I want to do is analyze just those to begin with, see what we find there in terms of component parts of the apocalyptic worldview, and then only subsequently turn to other literature. That way we at least have a way of saying what we find in the Gathas is potentially what Zoroaster himself taught, and then we can see how it developed subsequently in other literature. So one of the key Gathas that I want to draw your attention to is Yasna 30 in these Gathas. In Boyce's translation, uh, which I'm using here, her translation of the Zoroastrian writings is a, actually a collection of some of them, is no, called Textual Sources for the Study of Zoroastrianism. You should be able to find that at a good academic library near you. There is actually an online translation that's available for you to read. It's called An Introduction to Zoroastrianism on the Harvard University website. It's a translation done by a scholar in this area named Prods Oktor Skervo. I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation of that name. Sorry about that. Anyhow, if you either go to the Harvard University website and do a search on Zoroastrianism, or I got it as the number one hit when I typed in Zoroastrianism and Harvard in Google. There he has an introduction to Zoroastrianism, which you can look through, but also he, he provides translations of some of the key texts that we're also talking about here. However, I've been using Boyce's translation. But let me read you Yasna 30 here page 35 in Boyce's translation, which reflects primarily what we just saw in Plutarch, so that we're seeing confirmation of what seems to go back to Zoroaster himself, though we can't be sure. Here's what this hymn says. Hear with your ears the best things, reflect with clear purpose, each man for himself, on the two choices for decision. Being alert indeed to declare yourselves for him, before the great requital. Truly there are two primal spirits, twins renowned to be in conflict. In thought and word, in act, they are two, the better and the bad. And those who act well have chosen rightly between these two, not so the evildoers. So already we have a statement in this hymn here that there are two primal spirits. There's a dualism. And here we already have the idea that humans make a choice in taking sides in the dualism, that there are good and evil people, that there are evildoers and that there are the just people, and that human beings are part of this conflict that is taking place between these two spirits. This is essential to the apocalyptic worldview, and we're already getting that component of the apocalyptic worldview at least, here being attributed to Zoroaster and potentially going back to Zoroaster. Let me go on though. And those who act well have chosen rightly between these two, not so the evildoers. And when these two spirits first came together, they created life and not life. Of these two spirits, the wicked one chose achieving the worst things. The most holy spirit, who is clad in hardest stone, chose right. And so do those who shall just satisfy Lord Mazda continually with rightful acts. So there you have it, without stating the names, Ahura Mazda, the principle of light, the principle of good, the principle of order, versus Angra Mainyu, the threatening darkness, 
that is at the heart of the Zoroastrian worldview here. And it's being uh, seen here in some of the earliest material that we have. So this two primal spirits at war with one another seems to go back to Zoroaster himself. Another thing we've already noticed right here is this idea of a destination for human beings, that human beings have a role to play in the battle between Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu, and that some choose Ahura Mazda's side, the just, and that others are on the evil side, the evildoers. This idea of humanity divided into two camps, this dualism that not only involves the gods' dualism, the battle between two, but that the whole of creation is part of this dualism, comes up again and again, especially with regard to humans playing a role in this dualism, in these gathas. So that you can say that this isn't just a one-time issue in one of these hymns. It recurs over and over again in what the earliest material we have attributed to Zoroaster. And there's this emphasis on them have a de having a destiny. You could say the equivalent are hell and heaven, but let's not use those words. Let's say, see what we've got here. The terms we find in these early Gothas are worst existence is where the destiny of the wicked is. And the house of best purpose is the destiny of those on the side of Ahura Mazda. There are also allusions in some of these other hymns to judgment that takes place in connection with this discerning of the wicked and the just and determining which of those two places they go. Another term that we find in the hymns that's worth mentioning is the house of the lie. The house of good purpose and the house of the lie as those two contrasting destinies for humanity. Another thing I want to mention, so we've got the cosmic dualism in the early hymns, we've got a place and a destiny for people who take sides in the dualism, and we also have reference to something else that develops more fully later, but we don't have much hint here of what exactly is involved. But we have mentioned in the hymns the Seoshiant, the future benefactor, a sort of future savior figure who will play a role in helping Ahura Mazda's side of the battle when this time comes to an end, when the time for the obliteration of evil comes about, that the figure, the Seoshiant, will play a role on behalf of Ahura Mazda in this. Now that figure is mentioned in these hymns, but not fully developed, and it's not quite clear what Zoroaster would have taught with regard to it. So we can't project back what we see in the later literature into this Zoroaster's time, but we at least have that term already. There are also hints in these early hymns of a transfiguration of the world that will take place when this battle between Ahura Mazda, the good god, and Angramanyu, the bad god, comes to an end. It's not spelled out fully, but we have language like this, that there will be a time when this world will be transfigured. We have that referred to in one of the hymns, the same hymn we've been reading there about the two spirits. Those are the main component parts of the apocalyptic worldview that we already find in the earliest material attributed to Zoroaster, which potentially, therefore, may go back to Zoroaster himself. Zoroaster himself taught that there was Angramainyu, the evil force, fighting against Ahura Mazda, the, the light force, and that humans took sides in this battle, and that there was a future time when humans were either rewarded or punished. That core, you could say, that central point of the apocalyptic worldview is already there in the earliest material and probably goes back to Zoroaster. 
let's move forward now briefly to sketch through some of the other evidence we find in other Zoroastrian writings. We're better off looking at the rest of the writings in terms of how did apocalypticism develop after Zoroaster, and how did these basic ideas that Zoroaster expressed develop into more sophisticated teachings that are full-blown apocalypticism, let's put it. So let's look at some of these main characteristics of the Judean apocalyptic worldview that we also find characteristic of the Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview. First of all, what stands out very clearly in uh, just about all of the apocalyptic material within the Zoroastrian Avesta, their, their scriptures, is this idea of periods of history and an end to history. The way it's expressed within the Zoroastrian material is that there is limited time and the making wonderful. So there's this idea of, and of dividing up limited time into certain periods of history and that at the end of limited time is when that battle between Ahura Mazda and Angramanyu will come to a complete end with the obliteration of Angramanyu and all evil and all evil people and that the making wonderful will take place. This is something we didn't have fully expressed in those earlier gathas, but what we do have fully expressed in the later Zoroastrian material is this idea of the making wonderful, the establishment of a perfect society for those who are on the, the right side, for those who have worshipped Ahura Mazda and who have contended against Angramainu in their daily lives in a variety of ways. One of the interesting things in the Zoroastrian literature is that this periodization of history that we'll soon see as characteristic of Judean apocalypticism gets expressed in a variety of ways. One of the ways it gets expressed is using the analogy of a tree with many branches. This will ring familiar to those of you who are familiar with things like the book of Daniel that we're going to read later in the course. But let me read you a passage here that gives you this idea of how an apocalyptic thinker like these Zoroastrian apocalyptic thinkers who are developing Zoroaster's ideas, how does that sort of apocalyptic thinker express these periods of history? Here we have something attributed to Zoroaster speaking to Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda said to Zoroaster, what have you seen? So there's just been a vision or a display that Zoroaster has seen in this uh, interaction between Zoroaster and his, the god he honors, Ahura Mazda. Zoroaster said to uh, Ahura Mazda, I beheld, I saw a tree on which there were seven branches, one of gold, one of silver, one of copper, one of brass, one of lead, one of steel, one of blended iron. Ahura Mazda, the god, said, Zoroaster, this is what I declare. The trunk of the tree which you beheld is the worldly existence which I, Ahura Mazda, created. The seven branches which you beheld are the seven times which are to come. That of gold is the reign of King Vishtasp. When I and you shall confer about the religion, and King Vishtasp will receive the religion. So we have here hearkening back to a time when uh, one of the rulers in Persia started to agree with Zoroaster and started to protect him. He then goes through each of the different branches, the silver, and attributes that to a, a king, in this case a Persian king of Artaxerxes II, copper related to a king, brass another king, and it brings you up to date, you could say, right up and beyond, it seems, the uh, time of Alexander the Great in this particular scenario. 
But the point I'm making here is that this is one of the ways you'll find in apocalyptic literature that an apocalyptic thinker will think in terms of periods of history and will express it using this sort of imagery, in this case, a multi-branched tree of different metals. So that's one characteristic relating to this limited time in the making wonderful, the periods of history that are important to this Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview. Another thing I want to draw your attention to is the idea of signs of the end. So in the later Zoroastrian material, we have this idea of the signs of the end. Take, for example, in Boyce's translation, page 92, Zoroaster once again speaking with Ahura Mazda, and Ahura Mazda explaining what the signs of limited time coming to an end will be. What will the signs that uh, Angramainu is about to be destroyed be? And the, the establishment of the Making Wonderful Society. Uh, what will the signs be that indicate that this is coming? The large district will become a single town, the large town a single village, the large village a single household. These devs with disheveled hair, this is often a reference either to the armies of Alexander the Great in the Zoroaster material, and then it gets reused again uh, in reference to the armies of the Muslim armies following Muhammad in the, we're talking in the 600 CE, quite a bit later. But the devs with disheveled hair are referred to here. These devs with disheveled hair are deceivers and of very bad religion. No treaty or pact is to be made with them, and the treaty which they make, they do not keep. Through deceit and greed and misrule, they will destroy these Iranian lands, which I, Ahura Mazda, created. So here we have something that's very characteristic of apocalyptic worldview, and that is that there is an evil spiritual force fighting with a good spiritual force, here Ahura Mazda and Angramainu, but this gets lived out in the everyday life of people. People take sides in that and have become part of the battle, and even kings and politicians are part of this battle between good and evil in this case, some of the rulers are taken to be part of Angramainu's forces coming to do evil against the good people. But back to these signs of the end. In that time, all men will become deceivers and great covenants will be altered. Honor and affection and love for the soul will depart from the world. When your millennium will be at its end, Zoroaster, the sun's rays will be very level and low slanting and year and month and day will be shorter and the earth will contract, crops will not yield seed, and plants and bushes and trees will be small, and people will be born very stunted and will have little skill or energy. All people will worship greed and be a false religion. It will not be possible for an auspicious cloud and a just wind to bring rain at its due time and season. On and on go these lists of the terrible things that will be a sign of the end of limited time and a sign of the coming of the destruction of evil and the establishment of a perfect blissful kingdom, the making wonderful for the people on the right side, on Ahura Mazda's side. So that's another important component. We have the periodization of history and this idea of signs of the end of that last period of history that, are, that is coming. Another important component in the later Zoroastrian fully developed worldview is the Seoshiant, the future benefactor, gets triplicated. There ends up being three Seoshiants, three future benefactors, savior figures, that play a role in completing Ahura's Mazda's plan to put an end to Angramainu in the 
uh, Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview. This is quite a late development. This idea of the three Sheoshians does not go back to Zoroaster. It's a development of his teachings in a particular way. I won't go into the details on that one, but just to mention that there are savior figures that play a role at the end time in the same way that you have that within the Judean apocalyptic worldview. The final cosmic battle obviously takes place after these signs of the end. You will have that final cosmic battle and the defeat of evil and the making wonderful that we've had referred to in some of the other literature we've looked at today. One final thing I want to draw your attention to, though, that is important within the Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview in its full-blown form is resurrection, judgment, and where this leads people. We find it in the greater, what they call the writings, the greater Bundahishin, chapter 34, where we have a somewhat detailed description. Again, it's Zoroaster speaking to Ahura Mazda is the format of this material. And we have uh, Ahura Mazda explaining to Zoroaster what will happen at the end time when resurrection takes place. First, the bones of Geomard will be raised up, and then those of Masha and Mashanag. And then those of other people. So there's sort of a, a progression of resurrection of bodies. In 57 years, the Seoshiant will raise up all the dead. And all mankind will arise, whether just or wicked. Then the assembly of Isad Vistar will take place. In that assembly, everyone will behold his own good or bad deeds. And the just will stand out among the wicked like white sheep among black. Fire will melt the metal in the hills and the mountains, and it will be upon the earth like a river. Then all men will be caused to pass through that molten metal. And for those who are just, it will seem as if they are walking through warm milk. And for the wicked, it will seem as if they are walking in the flesh through molten metal. And thereafter, men will come together with the greatest affection, father and son and brother and friend. So those who have walked through and feel the molten metal as milk are the just who are going to go on to this perfect society. It says down here, forever and ever, immortally. So we have this idea of the resurrection of the dead at the end times and the judgment between good and evil with those who are good going on to a perfect immortal existence forever. In Ahura Mazda's newly created making wonderful uh, society. Let's end on that positive note, let's say, on the Zoroastrian apocalyptic worldview. Next time we're finally turning to Israelite culture and what we can find within both wisdom literature and within prophetic literature that helps us to understand the emergence of apocalypticism within Judean culture. I hope you'll come again.